Hello, welcome to the Do Lectures with me, Gav Thompson. I hope you enjoyed the last episode, Sue Perkins. Thank you for indulging me with a little bit of reminiscing about our funny old times together. This week, in episode four of Being Amazing Despite, things get a little bit more serious, talking to a gentleman by the name of James Schoen. His story is amazing in that he is now leading a charity called I Can and I Am, helping young people find inspiration and, and positivity in, in today's society and educational system. But really, his, the key to his story is his despite. James was a teacher. He was about to become a head teacher at his dream job. And one day in a routine medical examination, the doctors discovered that he had a, I think it's fair to say, massive brain tumour that was you know life-threatening and, and in some people's view, inoperable. James had the operations uh, 27 hours, I think, At the end of it, he woke up, the tumour had gone, and so had his eyesight. So he was unexpectedly blind, and not long after, he unexpectedly lost his job. So he was blind, he was unemployed, he had four kids to support, and he bounced back. So look, I won't tell you the story now. Please sit back, relax, grab a coffee, and listen to James Schoen being amazing despite. So welcome to the Do Podcast, James Schoen. Thank you very much. An honour to be with you. Very, very good to have you here too. James, I've just explained a little bit about your background, but in your own words, you know, your story is amazing. Obviously, the title of this podcast is Being Amazing Despite. Tell us a bit about your your story and how we got to be here today. Uh, yes, well... I'm not sure if I am amazing at all, but I, my story is is that I'm uh, I'm married. I have four children. I used to be a teacher. I taught for 16 years back in 2012. So that's eight years ago now. I was appointed to become a headmaster of a prep school. That was great. I was 39. It was the first headship I'd applied for, and I got the job. And um, and it was a time of sort of real satisfaction. And I, if I'm allowed to say, I was probably a bit pleased with myself. I thought, oh, great. You know, we're moving into a lovely home on the edge of Bath. My four children could go through the school system, which had a senior school too. I then went for a medical. And it was at that medical that a huge brain tumour was uncovered. I'll never forget the registrar who had been looking at my scans came up to me and said, you are a very poorly man. And that was a bolt out of the blue. You know, it was a complete shock. And in fact, we were due with our four children to be going on holiday. It felt like a celebratory holiday, having got this great job. We were going to Greece. It was the summer holidays the following day. We obviously couldn't go to Greece. Did you have any symptoms at the time? What was the reason to have the scan? Well, I had to have a scan because it was part of the medical of getting the job. And when I had my medical, the doctor uncovered that my left eye wasn't working as it should. He then sent me to an optician. Opticians, it was torches to the back of the eye and magnifying glasses. Couldn't see any problem in my eye. So she then sent me off to the big hospital in Bath where I had a brain scan, an MRI scan. This tumour was uncovered. So suddenly what felt like a sort of fairly blissful world was blown apart. And I had to go home 
and we had to tell our four children. So we're sitting in a line on the sofa. I can still remember it so clearly to this day. And there they were. I said, I'm afraid we can't go to Greece, guys. And daddy's got a brain tumor. My son looked to me with his little chin wobbling as he tried to hold back the tears. And he just said to me, Dad, are you going to die? Oh, gosh. And that was a fast ball. I'm not going to lie. It was one of the fastest of my life, really. I, I just remember saying to him, I don't know, my boy, but I'm going to fight. But I'd also, all I'd heard was from this doctor that I was a very poorly man. And you hear two words like brain and tumour, and you think, I probably am a goner. So I, I remember... Sorry to be basic, but how big was this thing? It was what's called on plaque, which means like plaque on your teeth. It was, it was all over the top of my brain, and it had got caught up in, the, um, in my optic nerves, and it had got wrapped around my brain stem at the back. So it was all over the place. The thing in your eye, the eyesight that the opticians or the doctor spotted, had you, were you aware that you were suffering from anything until that? Had you not had the medical, would you have spotted it? I kind of knew. I sort of thought, I'm getting a bit older and, you know, these things happen and let's not worry about it. And it's amazing when your right eye works perfectly, you know, it doesn't seem to matter really if one eye doesn't work very well. It was interesting, I played a lot of golf and I remember I used to find quite often because my left eye was my leading eye up and I, I often wouldn't see where a driver gone. It had gone too quickly. You got this diagnosis of brain tumour, so then, then what happens? Well, I returned home, we told the children we couldn't go on holiday to Greece and then it was a bit of a waiting game and it was a case of finding the consultant and... Um, which consultant was the best. And we thought we were in a position of choice. But in the end, we went to see this man at a hospital in Bristol. Do you know, the most amazing thing was that I was sitting there with my, me and my wife, Olivia, and he was all set to tell us, sorry, I can't operate on you. And he was going to do that because it was so complicated. And he looked at my scan and he just thought, I'll only leave him as a paralyzed man or I could kill him. But when he met Olivia and I, and the fact that we've got four young children and we were in the kind of, I suppose, the thick of life, he thought, let me give it a go. Let me give it a go. Had you sort of walked in on a slightly different vibe, he was planning to go, you're too far gone. Yeah, you're too far gone. That's just crazy when you stop and reflect on that. I know it is. It is. Wow. I remember, I remember we came away from that meeting and I remember his concluding line, he said, you have got one hell of a fight on. He said, I'll do my bit, but you've got to do yours. And we kind of finished with a high five. And it's like, come on, let's do it, you know. There's a funny little story in there, lesson in there, which I found when I, I had tongue cancer and, and way less dramatic than this. But sim tiny bit of similarity, which is one doctor was kind of going, we're going to cut it out. And the other one was going, it's radiotherapy. And, and there's this sort of difference of opinion, which unless you've been close to it like you have and to some extent I have, you don't realise that medicine, like any subject, there is blurring. It's not binary. There's no black and white. And it's, <laughs> it's what Dr X on the day thinks he's capable of doing, backed up by data and numbers. But there is subjectivity, as you found. And actually, you know, thank goodness there is. You could have been a very different outcome, yeah. as could I, actually. So then... There was, you know, we, he agreed that he was going to operate on me. He obviously couldn't instantly. And I had about a 
probably a 10-day window before the operation. I remember one thing I do remember, the day before that I was submitted or admitted to the hospital, French aid was called in Bristol, I went to Super Saturday at the London Olympics. So there I was, it was, you know, and I remember the Mo Farah gold, which was just incredible. I think he did 25 laps of that track. And from about 10 laps on, the whole of the stadium was standing up. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you shout your loudest, yet you can't hear your own voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the odd sporting event, yeah. Had you planned to go, or did that come about? Uh, you know, I was invited at the very last minute by my father-in-law. He took me along, and and then it was a case of, I was picked up, a friend, I remember, organised for a driver to come and pick me up from central London and drove me back. And I got back to Bath probably at about two in the morning, and the next day I went in. Okay, so then what happens? Yeah. So then dropped off the first night I was there. It was a Sunday night and that was all fine. I remember Usain got his 100-metre goal that night. That was all exciting. And then the next morning, it was quite a surreal time. You know, I remember putting on my, having a shower and putting on my gown, nighty type thing. They're not very attractive, are they? They sort of open (laughs) at the back. Yes, that's it. Open at the back. Yeah, exactly. I remember then my wife arrived and we had to sign these bits of paper. You know how you have to sign bits of paper for They're yellow, aren't they? Those yellow yellow bits of paper. Well, I can't remember the colour, but I I remember that there was a 30% chance of me in that operation of coming out of it paralysed. And there was a 10% chance of me being dead. And it just suddenly hit me like a flipping, you know, I hadn't dwelt on those stats before. I was wheeled down this long, long corridor. Olivia was holding my hand. And as she let go of it, she sort of squeezed it tight. And then I disappeared into the theatre. And I just thought, oh, my word. Probably eight years on, you know, I've started to kind of imagine what it must have been like for her. And just so hauntingly awful. I often reflect on that too. I think for the partner of someone that's having, has got a life-changing illness or life-threatening illness or going for a life-changing operation, it's arguably worse for them because they have no control. Yeah. Doctors are very good at making you feel good and, you know, you're kind of in the fight, aren't you? But they're just spectating. It's really tough. So yeah. tell me about the op. Well, I can't remember too much about it, to be honest with you. The first one was 14 hours. And that was all around the brainstem at the back. The tumour got wrapped around the brainstem. It was a complete success, that first operation, because as the surgeon described afterwards, it was like chicken falling off a bone, and the tumour just came away. He was fairly convinced that that was the one that was going to leave me paralysed. But anyway, I came out of the operation, and I went into ICU for 14 days. And that's where I celebrated my 40th birthday. Celebrate, not probably the right word, but um, yeah, acknowledged. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Gosh. And then I woke up out of ICU and I moved into the high dependency unit. And I had a tracheostomy. I've still got a horrible scar. So me too, I've got one of those. Not, they're horrible, aren't they? Yeah, they are really grim. I kept getting chest infections and... They had to suck all this schmuck out of me. I found that really, really unpleasant, the sucking out thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Painful and grim and the noise yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, the noise, uh, so horrible. That time was quite hard, you know, because obviously I was completely, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink, I couldn't talk. So for about six or seven weeks I had before my next operation. In fact, it was a bit longer than that. It was probably about eight weeks. And at this point, prior to the second operation, your sight is still fine, or as it was? It was as it was. And the plan with the second operation was that they were going to try and clear out the impact of the tumour on on my left optic nerve and restore my sight. But anyway, they found that it was entrenched too deep and it was entrenched in both my left and my right eye. And so I came out of that second operation and for, you know, for five, maybe even longer, maybe a week, my wife would come and see me. I would sort of iterate, you know, again, tracheostomy, couldn't speak, but she would read and I would say, why are you here in the middle of the night? Because I couldn't see a thing. She was like, oh, my word, my husband, she was getting all the sort of nurses and doctors and surgeons, as you well know, you know, they're rare beasts, aren't they? They're, they're not around very much. No, no, no. They're, and when they, when they arrive, they're like the arrival of, you know, the second coming. That's right. So anyway, I came out of hospital and the, the surgeon had then seen me and, and I was able to see a little bit. So the kind of belief was that my sight was going to slowly start returning. So you're, at this point, you are, to all intents and purposes, blind. I'm blind. Almost 100% blind. I was then able to perceive light and darkness and then slowly figures. And I went down for six weeks to my mum's house because we decided that actually I was still due to become headmaster of the, of the prep school. And I was at that stage a housemaster in the senior school. So there was a sense of the community does not need to see me in this state. So I went down to my mum's house and I I honestly at this stage couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I couldn't really see. I was, you know, I hadn't eaten and my mum would feed me scrambled egg and yoghurt and and that's what I lived off. And slowly I got used to eating again. My little voice returned. I used to crawl around my house or my mum's house. Six feet two I am. And I'm a 40-year-old, and my mum would see me crawling like a baby. Just so I'm clear and the listeners are clear, in the anticipation, I know there wasn't long, of the surgery, and between Operation 1 and Operation 2, had everyone discussed that one of the outcomes might be that you would be blind? No, no. Oh, wow. And there was a sense that I got over the first big operation, which was the, um, I'd done 80% of it. I think that was once said. And I remember the doctor saying, no, this operation is going to be a lot easier, won't be nearly so traumatic. And, you know, because I came out of the first operation and I was absolutely mullered. But then the the second operation hit me harder because I lost my sight. You know, whilst I was at my mum's house, gradually my speaking returned. You know, it was very, very weak voice. And I started to be able to walk slowly. I got a Zimmer frame and and I used to practice every day. I would go for a walk around the, the local park with my mum and I would sort of walk into things and, you know, it was awful. But slowly in time, I got better. And my sight also started to kind of return a little bit. And anyway, it got to the point where it is now, which is no sight in my left eye and 10% sight in my right eye. Explain that 
to me in more sort of simple terms. What does 10% and one eye feel like? It's very, very tunnel. So as I look at the Zoom screen, I, I can see you, but I can't see kind of anything else. I'm looking down a very narrow tunnel. So my field of vision, my peripheral vision is not there. But you could tell whether it's night or day. I can. I, I mean, I can tell that you're wearing a check shirt and that you're a very fine-looking man. <laughs> <laughs> Said someone with 10% sight in one eye. I'll take that, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> the thing that's really... I mean, well, I want to obviously get on to the, your life since then, but it's just the idea that someone is sort of fighting one battle over here, which is the, a battle which is you know potential death and maybe paralysis... And then this thing just kind of creeps up on you, which is blindness, which, as you know, is unbelievably debilitating and everyone's sort of worst nightmare. And you weren't prepared for it. And it just... How does one deal with becoming blind? Can I just tell you, I would cite as one of the hardest moments on my journey. I remember leaving my mum's house where I'd been for six weeks and I then returned home after the end of the school term at, at Moncton. So there were no pupils around. There were no, weren't too many teachers either. They'd sort of all disappeared for the holidays. And then on the 23rd of December, my surgeon, it was my first sort of post-hospital kind of consultation. And I went back, saw him, a very, very blunt man. And he asked me how I was and this and that. And then I did an eye test and he said, yeah, this I'm afraid confirms it, James. You need to start learning Braille because you're a blind man. And I thought, oh, gosh, well, happy Christmas to you too, I thought, you know. They do have a way, don't they, those guys, of just <laughs> telling that how it is. Yeah, they do, they do. So then I just remember getting into our car, Olivia and I, and just bursting into floods of tears. And that was really the start of many things. You know, there have been many moments of, oh, my word, could this really get any worse? What was the lowest point mentally? I think a real, a real low point was that, that, so that was Christmas time. Then in the summer term, I then had radiotherapy. In the Easter term, I had spoken to the chair of governors of the school and said, I'm really sorry, I can't take up the headship of the prep school. And I remember him saying to me, we will find something for you. We will look after you as a family. I then started a process of radiotherapy. And I remember the last day, it had been going on for six weeks. I'm not going to lie, it was the most hollowed out week I can ever remember being. And again, down to mums, so the children didn't have to see dad in that state, but I went for about a week down there. But on the way back from Bristol, driving down to Dorset, where my mum is, my mobile phone rings and it was the headmaster not the chair of governors, the headmaster of the senior school at Moncton, saying he wanted to see me. That phone call was basically to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing that the school can offer you. And so I remember lying on my mum's spare bedroom bed and there was that dawning of the day, I've got, I don't know where we're going to live. I don't know what my job's going to be. I can't see absolutely as weak as it can be. Yet, on the other hand, I've got four kids and I've got a wife and I'm 40 years old. I'm not ready to retire. And that was a real moment of, oh, my word, where do I go from here? 
Well, I just mm-hmm. want to just pause and just reflect on that. Often the temptation when sitting on my side of this conversation is to try and fill that with something glib or trite or I can't imagine how that must have felt. I've had low points myself. That takes the biscuit. Before that, they'd said that they thought there was a, going to be a role for you and then he he told you that there wasn't. So that... Yeah, yeah. On with the story, I guess. Because I guess, <laughs> look, we know, spoiler alert, it does end happily. But right now, we're in the deep thick of it. Do you know the most amazing thing happened that night? I had three phone calls on my mobile phone. The first one was from a friend saying he had had a whip round a group of friends and a sum of money had been put in my bank account. That money was basically enough for us to live off for a year. Then my loss of salary had been covered instantly. I remember going to have a look in my bank account and thinking, oh my word, you know, thinking that honestly a mistake had happened in the machine. So that was astonishing. Then a man rang me and said, James, I'm really sorry to hear what has happened to you. In the new academic year, I would love to spend some time coaching you. And he was a qualified life coach. And that is where my charity, what I now do, has come from, our chats. And then the third guy that rang me was saying, I'm doing one or two missions um, into schools, so spiritual Christian missions. Would you like to be involved? And I remember it was at one of those, I went on two that following term. And again, I was so weak and so tired. I would stand up and then I'd go to sleep all afternoon. Do you know what I mean? But that was when I first shared my story. And that was probably a bit of an indication as to where the next step was going to be. So I think actually that evening I got a sense of we're going to be okay financially for the next year and there may be new openings opening up i don't know what they are at this point how is your wife and kids managing with this kind of craziness my wife initially was very very angry she was very angry with the school who she felt had really let us down and had kind of shafted us at the last moment interestingly though my mind and my heart weren't I was going to be the head of a school. I kind of almost imagined that I was going to fall down to being like a janitor at the school. Do you know what I mean? And I couldn't imagine how I could possibly be used. So my heart wasn't there. I'd moved on from it. So I wasn't overly bothered, but Olivia was. She felt like a sort of bond and a covenant had been broken. Yeah. And how were your kids? They didn't really know about it. Right. I mean, again, I'm just thinking that's... When I was ill, I was very lucky that my company I was working for, big corporate O2, by the way, shout out to them because they did look after me amazingly well, you know, stood by me and literally just said, look, as long as it takes, we'll keep you on full pay. It could have been a lot longer than it was. It was only four months in the end, but there's never been a feature of my illness. This wasn't just this job's gone. You're kind of going, it's going to be unlikely I'm going to be a head teacher again in my... Wow. So... Tell us about the road from then to now. Yeah, we then moved out of a school boarding house and we bought a small house on the edge of Bath. And it was small for the six of us, you know, four kids. It was squash and squeeze, but we got in there and 
at that time, a day in my life was literally dressing gown on in the morning. And that was the extent. I got out of bed, I came downstairs, and I would come downstairs by kind of doing a bum shuffle. I couldn't properly walk. I would get into the kind of hallway and I'd grab hold of the back of a door or the back of a sofa and I'd get myself to my white chair. And my white chair, I was only 40 years old, but my white chair was where I hung out, like a 90-year-old, falling in and out of sleep and spilling and drinking tea. And, and that, that was my life. Back to that coach. And this was the real seminal moment in the story because he was the one that used to come and see me and he wouldn't sort of pander to all my loss. And so sort of, he would do a bit of that. But I, I wasn't in grief at that stage. I mean, it was too early on. I was sort of so caught. I'm still battling with this. What's going on in my life? You know, I, I would go to bed at seven o'clock every evening. You know, I wouldn't bath the children. I wouldn't. Oh, I was so awful. I remember him saying to me, James, what's your passion? And, you know, that was a searingly powerful question because it somehow cut through the core of the I can'ts, which were so many, but in there, there was still a passion. And I remember saying to him, my passion is to see young people believing in who they are and what they can do. Who they are and what they can do. He looked at me and he said this, he said, Come on, let's do it. And there I was in my white chair with a sort of, you know, shaking right hand with a mug of tea. And, and that was the start of the journey, really. And that has now emerged. And I, we just celebrated five years as a charity, which is I can and I am. You know, so I want to tell kids that they can do it and they are of value. I sometimes feel like, the journey through the educational process is quite a linear one with exam results being the kind of chief end. And my passion is that actually we're human beings. We're not little academic robots. We're, we're people with potential. We're not little sort of, come on, I'll, I'll learn my French, I'll learn my physics. Actually, humanity is a wider gig than that. But the school system somehow narrows it down and with the pressures of both academics and social media, it's leading to more and more young people dropping their heads with a sense of, I'm anxious. And that then leads into a loss of hope and depression. And sometimes people say, I don't want to live any longer. Now that's wrong on every level, isn't it? It's such a massive problem. I did train to be a teacher. I have lots of friends who are teachers. I have three kids. I see my, you know, my oldest is nearly 14 son's 11 my little girl's three and it's really difficult now I'm lucky at the moment touch wood that my kids are all healthy and they're doing quote unquote well at school and they're smart but that you know that's not the case for lots of kids and and I think society and the school system certainly in this country and culture and technology is pushing and I know this sounds like such a sort of granddad thing to say I don't feel that it's a force for good. I mean, in many ways it is because access to knowledge and is everywhere. And But it's the school system needs to adapt because it's not, I don't think it's fit for purpose. I think we're a bit like a, a hand and a glove that don't fully connect anymore. And that knowledge-based curriculum, you know, knowledge is on Google, isn't it? And actually we need to move to more skills. 
we need to be adaptable, we need to be creative, entrepreneurial, all those things. And actually the big ingredient that is crucial for young people to have when they leave school is confidence. Confidence in who they are. And that's my big belief. So I talk all about inflating balloons of self-belief. And actually, when our balloon is inflated, if you can imagine in there, I've got a balloon right here, actually. Your balloon's inflated, you bounce back. And that's what resilience is. And too many young people leave school with their balloons looking like a flat tire. And the problem with a flat tire is that, like when you do have a flat tire, you hit a curb or go through a pothole and the wheel rim feels it. But if the metaphor is we have a balloon and we fail a test or nobody likes whatever we put on Instagram, we feel it. And it's not the rim of the wheel. It's our psyche. It's ourself. It's who we are that really gets damaged. So my passion is to see young people believing in who they are and what they can do and ultimately seeing their balloons inflated. I don't think many people listening to this, particularly parents, would disagree with the analysis of the problem. I, I, I really do believe that. I think it's you've defined a, an issue. I also think, from my limited experience of being a teacher, there are children who I knew when I was teaching them, and I remember from, from being a child, who do lack self-confidence. They don't have an obvious fit with the school curriculum, and often... They get, you know, quite and quite left behind by the system. They come out of school either with bad grades or with behavioural problems or self-confidence issues. So tell us about some of the ways or techniques or your kind of ambition to how you address the problem. Because the problem is universal, I, I believe, and I don't think anyone's going to argue about it. But clearly, the fixing yeah. of the problem is the, is the challenge. Tell yeah. us a bit about some of the theories or practices that you're trying to encourage. My talks or my presentations... I give at schools, either to pupils, so secondary level, so year seven and eight, all the way through up to sixth form. And my talk has three parts, and part one is my story, a bit like not as involved as I've shared today. Part two is your world, you know, the world, the world of education today, you know, it's great, but there are pressures, academic, social media. What does that lead to? Well, it leads to teenage anxiety and all that stuff. How do we get through the teenage years? And I talk about inflating our balloons and how do we do it? And I talk about my four pillars. And pillar number one is that schools have a culture of belonging. And what that means is that individuality is really celebrated. And at your school, you're allowed to be yourself. You know, after all, the world today, as we know, it is more diverse than it's ever been. And I talk about how do we encourage that culture is to develop a culture of mutual encouragement. That's where pupils encourage one another. Mr. Cool celebrates Mr. Uncool, and that's the way it is. You know, there's always been a culture. I remember I went to a boys' boarding school in the 1980s, and the culture was all about competition. The fist, it's me against you. I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm faster, I'm whatever. Whilst I want to encourage a culture of collaboration, which is that, working with rather than against. 
So the first of my four pillars is to create a culture of belonging, which leads to safety, which leads to a sense of protected environment and, and kids can be themselves when they feel safe. Number two is the value of a growth mindset. And I share very much my own story there, moving from a place of not being able to walk to rowing down the River Thames from start to finish. You know, I remember not being able to walk and crying into my mum's shoulder with a sense of, I'm 40 years old. I've got four kids. I, I want to be ahead. I can't walk. And I remember my mum just saying to me, it's about small steps. And isn't that true? That's what life is. And one of the chief jobs as a teacher is to notice and applaud those small steps. I sometimes feel that teachers and parents need to change the metric of success in their heads. And it's not just all about academic prowess and achievement. It's about noticing and applauding effort and, and endeavour when they find something really difficult, but yet they keep going in it. My third pillar is that we're all intelligent in different ways. It comes from a man called Howard Gardner at Harvard. He had a very pithy saying where he said, don't ask how intelligent is X, but ask how is X intelligent? And what's interesting, he's got a wagon wheel of eight intelligences and two out of eight of those being word smart or logically smart, which is your English, math, science, history, they're all tied up at school, modern languages too. But there are other forms of intelligence which, you know, you don't get formally assessed in. Yet, I feel that schools should be working hard to try and uncover where someone's intelligent. As well as that, we all have a unique purpose. It was um, Ken Robinson, who did a TED talk a number of years ago, saying how we all have an element, which is the joining point between what we love doing and what we're naturally good at. And when those two come together, it releases an energy, an element. Again, a lot of these schools now have got incredible facilities and opportunities. And rather than using them to market themselves, they should be using them to uncover this is where Johnny comes alive. And I think that, that those two points, where you're intelligent and what your purpose is, are strong indicators as to where and the direction you should go on in your life. Whereas often people will define their destiny by three little letters on a piece of paper, which are their academic results. I don't think that's what it's about. Then the fourth and final pillar, I always say to kids, you have a real hope. Hope, interestingly, is a word that isn't really talked about in education. And when I mentor kids, I spend quite a lot of time mentoring young people. When I mentor them, one of the things that often besets or holds people back is that sense of, I've had a failure. And, you know, I can say, oh, I'm blind. I'm, uh, but I, I have a real belief that we have one go at life. And, you know, this is our go right now. We're in the middle of it. And, you know, when these things come, 
we should reflect and refine ourselves rather than ruminating on it. Oh, I'm blind. And then defining ourselves, well, I'm a waste of time. I've had my go. No, don't do that. Reflect, refine, then move forward to the final step, which is to say, what's my dream? Where would I love to go? And I always finish by saying the key thing in life is our attitude. Because an attitude is something that can't be taken out of you. I remember what the last book I read before losing my sight was Viktor Frankl's masterpiece on um, surviving in Auschwitz. And that was a place where he was stripped, he was this, he was beaten, he was starved. But he always had the attitude, I can do this. And sure enough, he did it. And he came out with the line, they could take everything from me but they couldn't take my attitude away. James, I mean, not for the first time in our conversation, I'm slightly lost for words. What you're saying is so true, but it's also... Because it's easy as a parent to sort of moan about the system and your children's experience of it. But what you've given there is is very positive, actually, and very powerful and very encouraging, and I'm sure very actionable of what, both as a parent and as a teacher and as an institution parents teachers schools can do much better and I, again I sort of love it and I'm, I, I hate this format in some ways because I you know I guess we haven't really got time to get into it I hope for our listeners there's some practical stuff there isn't there and there's also some sort of behavioral stuff like giving kids hope giving them the power to sort of believe in themselves I love the celebrate individuality encourage everyone's sort of mutual encouragement because that that is it is quite countercultural. I too went to a quite an aggressive sort of boys' school where if you weren't either really academic or really good at sport or really big character, the system just didn't serve you very well. No, no. And it was almost a homogenizing of these are the copers, those are the non copers. And you had to become and have to wear those shoes and have that haircut or whatever in order to survive. And you think, well, that, what a nonsense, actually. What a nonsense. You know, but the world today is now so different and businesses and football teams and you just look at it and it's just, you know, there's no sense of everybody being the same in a certain place. You know, everywhere is now different, really. But do you not um, think that Instagram perhaps is fighting that a little bit? Because there's a conformity of certainly how people are supposed to look that comes through, for girls particularly, you look at Instagram, you, I mean, I'm, as a dad of a nearly 14-year-old, I'm just going, that can't be helpful. Because a lot of this, I do think, is, is about parenting and about society yeah. and about peer groups. For some girl who is struggling with self-identity issues or how she looks, you know, and she's seen all this Instagram kind of life, which isn't real life, of a parent of a girl going through that, how do you offset that? It's not easy, I think, is the first thing I say, because the reality is this digital world, you know, it is the principal platform upon which young people relate today. And, you know, it wasn't in our day where the old fashioned sort of friendship traits of loyalty, of faithfulness, of kindness, that abounded in our day, but it doesn't now. But I think to a 14 year old, you want to be encouraging them not to live on their phone and not to live on their screens. And actually, 
time spent doing other things. And in my language, it's trying to inflate their balloon in other ways. Because if they're going to sit looking at images of beautiful girls with gorgeous bodies, and even for the most gorgeous girl, it's still going to be pretty. That's the thing about social media is that nine times out of 10, you come away from it feeling less good than when you started. And it's true, actually, for us as, as adults. You know, it's like, ah, oh, I haven't done, oh, no, ah. Oh. And so it is always just hitting a note of slight deflation. So I think as parents and all of us as adults, we've got to navigate ourselves wisely around it. And, and the thing that we need to understand as parents, just to take it away, is probably not the answer because it is so now endemic in their culture. You're denying them a whole root way of friendship if you take it away. I also think it's a case of think to yourself, what can they do? Do they like cooking? Do they like looking after the animals, walking the dogs or, I don't know, you know, different things that you sort of think that energises them. I always think for parents, often a parent, two parents might be sitting at supper and they'll be discussing, how's their French? How did the maths test go? You know, the one that they were, and actually, Again, these guys are not little robots. And a really good place to start is by what is their element? Where do you think they are intelligent? Because when they are exercising, what they really can do, that's a time where their balloon is being inflated. And when their balloon's inflated, that's when they're resilient and they bounce back. I've seen your TED Talk. And again, listeners, I'd encourage you to see James's TED Talk. It's amazing. I suspect when you talk to engage with kids and parents and teachers, no one's going to disagree with you because it's so well thought out and it's so based on just genuine human insight. How do people kind of move forward with it? That's always the question. And, and as a charity, we're slightly going through that motion at the moment where I want to move from being inspiring. You know, I still feel when I go to the school, I might speak to kids or staff or parents. Often the word that was so inspiring. Well, and I, I'm sick of the word inspiring because if I'm speaking to teenagers, it's probably like a sort of a puff of smoke that blows away in 10 minutes. And my passion is to see inspiration turn to transformation, which means that a young guy or a young girl suddenly gets a kind of an epiphany moment of this is who I am and what's more I'm really happy with who I am and we're about to as a charity we we were unbelievably we've been donated a double-decker bus so Howden's the kitchen company donated us this bus on the ground floor of the bus we're having um it's all been chairs and whatever have been taken away and they put a Howden's kitchen in it so in the ground floor we'll park up at a school we'll bake bread and we will mentor kids so my passion is that a kid will grow in a sense of their own strengths and qualities as well as take a kind of fresh loaf away and then upstairs on the bus, we will run workshops that COVID is actually giving us time to kind of write those workshops and get our ducks in a row. 
And through the bus will be a place where, I mean, one of the things that I'm always conscious of, that I'm in a school for an hour or two, but sometimes I feel I, w I want to be there for a day or two. And I think that's what the bus will enable us to do. And do you, because I think the education system really probably has to pivot and it hasn't yet, do you feel that there's a role for you to try and be sort of, you know, for use of a slightly grandiose word, lobbying kind of government for a, a proper structural change in the curriculum and how we view education? Is that part of your mission? I, I, that... I, I, no, I'm not doing that. My challenge is really, uh, you know, I can't see and I can't, I get tired and I still have, you know, all sorts of grief and stuff like that to deal with. So other people are doing that, I'm sure. And, and there is no doubt, you know, it's happening on such a large scale. There are so many of us trying to help out that the government have got to sit up and think, right. And, and actually, I look at the sort of debacle of last year's exams. I had two children doing GCSE and A-level. And both of them got their results, yet they didn't sit down in the exams. You know, you think that that's almost making a mockery of the system. And great, let's make more and more of a mockery of it, because it is actually just the most inappropriately ghastly system. It's not fit for purpose, right? No, no, it's not. No. And do you think things are changing? Do you sense as you go around from school to school... I mean, you obviously, are, you're, I assume you're an optimist, given your story. Yeah, no, I am 100% an optimist. The one thing that you know, I think my big heart is that schools move into a, a place of real, your teachers have what I call a pastorally proactive approach to their students. They're, they recognise they're on a journey and they're trying to help their kids to be the best version of who they are. And they're not simply reacting to problems. I think that is happening. One, one thing that I struggle with a bit is that schools are just, for the, for the mental health gig, are just getting more and more counsellors in. And I'm not sure that that's just, you know, offering a little scratch where it might be itchy. I think that schools need to have a bit more of a strategic approach to individuals and understanding that, you know, just more and more academic pressure is never going to be the answer. Yeah. Just finish off, your charity, if anyone's listening to this and want to help with your charity, tell us a little bit about the charity and how people... Yeah, yeah, the charity is called I Can and I Am. And we have a website, which is ICanandIam.com. And on the front page of that website... There are a number of, of short clips which tell you more about what we do. Also, as, as you've shared, you know, I, I did do a TEDx talk and that tells you exactly what I share in my presentations. So, you know, you can find out more there. I love visiting schools. Um, if you know of schools, please do um, introduce us. I would love to visit. You know, this bus project is a very, very expensive one. You can imagine it's a fairly heavy duty cost to a small charity. Any support that you, if you felt that you wanted to support, it would go down really well. On our website, we do have a kind of donate means. James, thank you for that. Normally, I'm quite good at summing up these things, but I, I, it's such an amazing story. But both the being the despite is unbelievable. I mean, in, in the sort of, if ever there was a kind of top trumps of, of despite, I think you've won. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, <that's nice>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's something you want to win, but and then the the being amazing. I I really I love what your 
analysis of the problem and I love what's it's a very positive and encouraging as a parent as an ex-teacher I feel it's a real force for positivity and good and thank goodness that you're doing it I'm really really pleased that you've taken the time to speak to us today any final closing summary thought anything you want to add I think for teenagers for parents you know the more we can help them and be helping them to make the right choices I often feel that because it's quite a bruising and wounding journey, we want to protect them. And we do protect them probably sometimes I feel more than we should do. But from really quite an early stage and age, we want to be teaching them to steer their own cars, let them make their own choices and learn from the mistakes that they make. I think that's a really helpful thing to do. James, that's a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, best of luck with I Can and I Am. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gav. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. What a story. James is an amazing man and that is an amazing story. As you heard, there was a few moments there where I really was quite lost for words, didn't know what to say. Thank you so much for listening. Next time we have Casper Craven. On Casper again has an amazing story. One day he decided to pack up life, buy a boat, put his wife on the boat who hated sailing and, and got terribly seasick, and his three kids, aged nine, seven, and two, and sail around the world, which he did. An amazing story. Please tune in to the next episode of Being Amazing Despite that out every Friday, every two weeks. This show was produced by George McDonough and the music by James Morton. Take care. Bye.